0: I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my
1: unedited conversation with naturalist and journalist Michael McCarthy. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast so chris, i'm I'm not hearing the echo, but you're hearing it still. Okay. okay. oh, okay. okay. And he did say it was loud, yeah, yeah, okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Sand. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? I can,
1: yeah. Um, I am still hearing a little bit of an echo. Am I still loud?
2: No, no you're, you're fine. You're at mm-hmm. a good level. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, maybe the door is open.
2: Hang on, they're just going to try and do something.
1: Okay. But it's a good connection. I'm not hearing too much of a... Um,
2: no, there's no a, interference. A gap,
1: yeah. I'm so delighted to be speaking with you.
2: That's very kind of you. I
1: can't tell you how much I love your book, and I'm telling everyone about it. Yeah, (laughs) It's as marked up as any book I have ever read.
2: Ah. (laughs) Including the Bible.
1: Including the Bible. And I picked it up just on a table in a bookstore in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ah,
2: well, good old Twin Cities, isn't it? (laughs)
1: Yep. Do you have any questions for me uh, before we get going? Okay. I, I don't
2: think so. I'm, okay, you know, I'm happy to respond to you.
1: Yeah, I don't. Uh, so I, I don't usually do. Uh, we don't generally do book interviews. Um, but really, and I, and I've, you know, we dug around a little bit, and I've, I've also looked at your, um, some of your other writing. But uh, I, I really, so, so, I, we're we're not talking about the book, but essentially we're talking about everything the book is about. <laughs> okay, that's so. Fine. Uh, yeah. Um, so, Chris, I think we're good. Great. Okay. Um yes, and so we have a nice amount of time to have a big real wandering conversation. Uh-huh. Um I would like to start. I I I I start most of my interviews with a a question just just wondering about um the religious or spiritual background. Of someone's childhood, I find that is a very fertile place in everybody's imagination. Whatever their story is, it's full of questions and searching and softness. So, I don't know, how, however you would, however you would begin to just think of that, like how would you, how would you um, describe the religious or spiritual background of your childhood?
2: I would use a, a curious phrase to describe. What I am now, mm-hmm. I would describe myself as an ethnic Catholic. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, that was a phrase I can't claim authorship of it. It was used by a, a British woman politician about 20 years ago, meaning that I grew up a Roman Catholic uh, and I have abandoned the faith, uh, the, formally at, at any rate. But the belief system, if you, not well, not necessarily the eschatology of belief in heaven and hell, but the uh, the sense of right and wrong, I think, um, stays with you all your life and you relate to it. Was it Mary McCarthy who wrote a book called Once a Catholic? Yes, um, that's right. yeah. And um, I think the sense of right and wrong, and also I think I've got quite a strong sense of original sin. Yeah. I think I'm... Uh, quite aware that there is a very dark side to the species man uh, you know, if we can say that these days I think that the, the species is still called man, it's a human being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, and so even though I'm not formally religious, I like to think, I suppose that I carry with me what some people might describe as a religious sensibility Yeah
1: and I feel like right at the beginning of of your book um, the Moss snowstorm nature and joy you i mean this is this is a this is um a book about our bond with the natural world that's and, right right and you but and you start it, um, it it it's also woven and and that bond is both civilizational it's at once civilizational and species something about our species but it's also personal um and so and you do weave that personal story uh, all the way through your reflection on this large subject, and you know, you use the word "soul" in this way r- rather early. You, you you describe you know your mother's illness, and she she was away for a time, institutionalized. And one of the things that happened to you as a child is that you you had a lack of feeling about that uh, that you could perceive. But then you describe this day. And here's just the sentences, and that that th- there was this singular window of observing butterflies. And he said, "When I was a skinny kid in short pants, butterflies entered my soul." <laughs> so, would you just tell a little bit of that story, as and why that is a vantage point for you on again this large civilizational issue?
2: Well, um, it was really just a personal way uh, of my own, uh, a way through my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, of uh, beginning to explore um, the the strange conundrum, which is what it seems to me, that we can actually love very fiercely the natural world. Uh, and I uh, we sort of take that for granted as a commonplace. But it, as I've got older, it seemed to me a rather curious phenomenon because... After all, the natural world is only the the environment from which we emerge as species like every other species, and like every other species, there are two things that the natural world has for us: one is danger and one is utility, mm. because the natural world can be dangerous and it can kill you. you, know, you can are thousands of people killed by snakes in India every year still, or the natural world can be a great advantage, it can provide you with food and shelter and various other things. And all species are aware, even if instinctively, of these two things. But we have a third thing, which is that we can actually love the natural world. And as far as I'm aware, no other species can love the natural world. And so what my book is, is an exploration of why that is and what that might mean for us in an age when the natural world is mortally threatened and the story at the beginning was simply, uh, I say that, you know, everybody may have their own stories, but this was simply mine. Uh, it was the, uh, the way in which at, at the age of seven, in a time of uh, great trauma in my family, uh, I personally became attached to nature.
1: Yeah. Um, looking at a, 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 a tree that was crawling, crawling with butterflies.
2: Well, it was a particular bush. Uh, it's yeah. called the Buddleia. Yeah. I imagine you have them in the States. They're, yeah. they're common now in the UK. But they're also known as the butterfly bush because they are the, the nectar in them is particularly attractive to butterflies. And this was a day uh, in August 1954 when my mother had gone away to hospital because she'd had a mental breakdown. Um, my brother, who was a year older than me, was completely mortified. He was terribly, terribly upset. And yet... Uh, I felt nothing whatsoever, which took me, which took me fifty years and a certain amount of psychotherapy (laughs) to to discover why. (laughs) And we went to my aunt's in a nearby suburb of the town where I grew up, which was greener than our house, which had been in the inner city. And there was a garden two doors away, and over the wall of this garden hung a buddleia bush and in those days when wildlife was far more numerous in the UK as indeed all around the world and it is now On the first morning, as I ran out into the road to play, this bush was just simply covered in butterflies. And it was very particularly very colourful ones, the most colourful of all the British butterflies. I mean, four of them in particular, the peacock, the red admiral, the small tortoiseshell and the... uh, uh, the, What's the other one? Um, Vanessa Cardewi. Remember the (laughs) scientific name? And I was... um, I was very taken by them. I, I was lost in contemplation of them. I thought they were remarkable. And the the reason why they made such an effect on me was because I didn't have any other feelings. It was a time when I should have had terrible feelings, hmm. but I had no feelings. And the feelings for the butterflies filled this hole, as it were. And that, from that moment on, I began to love the natural world, albeit in fairly strange circumstances.
1: Yeah. You... um. The, the, the framing that you give as you think about our collective encounter with this phenomenon and what it means for us in this moment in time is um, taking a very long view of time that, that there are 5,000 generations of us.
2: I actually um, say 50,000. 50,
1: right, but 5,000 of what we call civilization, right? But yes, that's f- right. Yeah, I, well, f- I, I,
2: I, sorry, yeah. just to be precise, okay. I, say fi- I say 500 generations of farming and 50,000 Okay, sorry. Yeah, of... I missed... I missed yeah.
1: put an extra okay. zero there. <laughs>
2: um, 500,
1: yeah, right. 500 generations of what we call civilization and the yeah. 50,000 generations. And, and the 50,000 generations when we were part of nature... Um, that 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 is and your 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 argument is that you know that in that period that that is where we evolved where we became what we are where we learned to feel and react where the human imagination formed where we found our metaphors and similes and you know that's it's not an idea that i had ever heard expressed that way but as you as you lay it out it it kind of in the way you're talking about it makes sense in my body what you're describing right that, that well, is still defining us
2: yeah, I mean the idea is not mine and it's it's not new. It's about 40 years old. It's a perception that comes from evolutionary biology. I mean that's the, you know, the neo-darwinism of the late 20th century and a particular branch of that which is evolutionary psychology which has been going really since about the 80s. And 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 the core perception of evolutionary psychology is it is that the fifty thousand generations that preceded us in the Pleistocene, which is the age of the ice ages, when we when when we became what we are as part of the natural world, when we were wildlife, if you like, <laughs> we mm-hmm. don't think of ourselves as wildlife anymore, but we were wildlife then, that those generations are more important for our psyches, even now than the five hundred generations of civilization which have followed the invention of farming about 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that there is a legacy deep within us, uh, a legacy of instinct, a, a legacy of, of, of in- inherited feelings, which may lie very deep in the tissues. It may lie underneath all, all the parts of civilization which we are so familiar with mm-hmm. on a daily basis, but it has not gone. That We might have left the natural world, most of us, but the natural world has not left us.
1: You you describe really interesting, I mean, you've pursued this in many ways, you describe interesting uh, conversations you've had with, is it Neil Morris?
2: Oh, Niall, Niall? I think you say Niall. Yeah, Yeah, he's the guy who runs Bird Korea. Bird Korea. Sorry, Bird's Korea in in South Korea, yeah.
1: Yeah, and some of his observations about... um, the horizons, we human beings favor and and that there are dangers, as you say, then it's not all beauty um, and softness, but that these are dangers our bodies can understand.
2: Yeah. Th- yeah. I mean, it's funny you should pick up on that reference. Not many other people have, but mm-hmm. I did think it was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, Niall Moores is um, a bird watcher, a birder. Now, he's, he's a Brit, but he's sort of half Korean. He runs birds' career. But what he specialises in is what we would call waders and what you guys call shorebirds. Mm. And he spent years and years and years looking at shorebirds and other birds and the way in which they move through landscapes. Uh, the principal uh, motivation of which is to see and not be seen. Mm. And what he gradually came to realise was that people still move through landscapes in this way. It's still deeply within us. For example... If you watch people go into a square, very often they will walk around the edges of it, without even realising they're doing it, rather than cross it, rather than going across the open middle where they are very visible. And and there are uh, numerous such ways in 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 which uh, what it, what you were referring to then is that I, I do say that nature's not paradise. Right, if you right. think nature, yep. nature's paradise, you're mistaking it, yep. because nature has wonderful things, but it also has great dangers, and nature can kill you. But the point I was making is that these are our dangers. These are the dangers that we we evolved to be familiar with, mm-hmm. and so they are they are dangers which uh, can hurt us but they're not dangers which are in some way foreign to our nature whereas much of modern life um, from everything from central heating to automobiles to modern sewage disposal to air travel that's not what we evolved to be at peace with Mm -hmm. Uh, and so um, one of the reasons one of the things I say is that perhaps the the only place where we can be truly at peace is in the natural world
1: right and 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 I think the observation you make about that again it's so um interesting and rings so true kind of intuitively that um you know all of these new dangers that are unfamiliar and out of sync with even the rhythm of our bodies um uh, you know, twenty four seven is not a <laughs> bodies don't work twenty four seven. For example, sure. um, that this overwhelms us, and and I you know, and I think that sense of being overwhelmed runs through uh, you know contemporary life and contemporary politics and and society.
2: Well, yeah. you, I mean, the word you I suppose you describes what you are talking about is stress. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I imagine our ancestors in the Pleistocene, the hunter-gatherers, they will have experienced stress if they couldn't find food or if the winter was too cold for them. Uh, But I think that the multiple variations of stress that affect us in the cacophony of a modern city uh, are um, very hard to cope with for some people. Uh, and And that's why people instinctively... Uh, go back to the natural world, even if they don't know why. They go back to the natural world as, as something that can return their souls to peace. And of course, in the last thirty or forty years, we've started. We've started to see this. Uh, um, uh, we've started to see that this is true empirically, mm-hmm. true scientifically, as well as just, um, a, uh, if you like, a charming philosophical thought. I mean. One of the one of the things that I mention in the book that you will have noticed is the uh, fascinating example of Roger Ulrich. Yes, yes. The, the, this famous American hospital designer. He was basically he was many things, um, um, but he he was an architect basically. But he specialised in designing hospitals. And it, uh, in 1984, he published a paper in the journal Science, which made people all around the world sit up and take notice. And the title of it was quite remarkable. It said, View Through a Window May Influence Recovery from Surgery. And what Ulrich had found was that over nine years, patients in a hospital in Pennsylvania who underwent gallbladder surgery made substantially better and quicker recoveries if they had a natural view from their beds. And some of the windows of the hospital wing looked out onto a group of trees and some onto a brown brick wall. And those who were lucky enough to have the tree view, Ulrich found, they re- they recovered faster, spent less time in hospital, had better evaluations from nurses, required fewer painkillers and experienced fewer post-operative complications than those who, unfortunately, only had the wall to look at. Yeah. And we began to understand scientifically then, I think from about from that moment, really, that, that contact with nature clearly has... An empirical, measurable effect on people's physical and mental states, and and today this is more and more, of course, uh, uh, it, it, this is a subject which is more and more studied, and it's taken into account in uh, in, in 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 formal health policy.
1: Yes, I actually um, spoke with an immunologist um, who is, talked about how architects and and phys- physicians and people who are building hospitals are, you know, still working actively with that. Ulrich study and integrating that into the way hospitals are being built. Although I don't think that story, you know, I think we talk about this very much, right? I mean, it, it, um, anyway, you know, so so here we are um, at this moment, as you say, where, you know, w- we can, um, in this young century, um and there are all the milestones we could summon and all the lists we could make of of what the 20th century was about and the accomplishments of the late 20th century. And But you say we may come to a, to a different way of categorizing our time on earth, that we were the generation who over the course of their lives saw the shadow fall across the face of the earth.
2: Yeah, I'm referring to the baby boomers there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm born in the same year as Elton John and David Bowie. Um, uh, a bit younger than Paul McCartney. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the point I was making was that, really, our, if our generation is characterised... Which well, characterised in many ways, isn't it? I mean, for yeah. example, that we've had a, a much better life than our children, yeah. which is often pointed out now. Um, but we were sort of characterised by rock and roll. Mm. I mean, more or less, you yeah, know, that was the, the Beatles. The, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, that was the Bob Dylan. You know, that yeah. was the, yeah. the the music of our times. But uh, the baby boomers now, you know, we're all getting old. And when we look back on what that time was, the people who were born after the Second World War and, and came to adulthood in the late 60s and are now retiring. Uh, w- w- one of the things that happened in, in our time, one of the things that happened was the world population doubled in our lifetime. And, and the other was that the fabric of the earth began to be torn apart um, in, in, a, in a way that we have increasingly come to realise, we didn't first at first notice it. We thought this was a, as Neville Chamberlain said, that somewhere like the Amazon was a faraway country of which we know nothing, and only specialists were uh, were, were aware of what was happening. But now I think it's very hard not to realise that uh, all over the world, um, uh, natural systems and species are are being given a terrible time.
1: Yeah, and I think this point of this point about the the dimensions of our advance, whereas we focus so much on the trajectory of advance of our, you know, we get more sophisticated and with our technology, our mastery, our inventiveness, and I think we focus a lot on the pace now, and and even people talk about population growth, but somehow for me, the way you put this into context that the dimensions, the runaway scale of the human enterprise. And that, as you say, like in the same period of this baby boomer generation, between your teenage years and your middle years, between 1960, the year I was born, and 2000, the world's population doubled. And the world econo- economy grew, grew more than six times bigger. And yeah. right. And that this is – the scale of the human enterprise uh, um, is, is, is this defining thing that is also overwhelming this natural world, which is our – Life support well, system and home.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the points I would make about that is it. This is not just a point we've arrived at; it's a direction of travel. So you know, <laughs> the, the 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 scale of the human enterprise is, is is mammoth and gargantuan, but it's going to get very much bigger. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, It's the, the, that exponential
1: the, the, effect that will just well,
2: continue? Yeah yeah I mean Mm -hmm. you know the Chinese economy grew by 10% a year I mean Western economies they grow at 3% a year they think that's great but uh, the Indian economy is going to grow at uh, formidable rates and and, and what we used to call emerging uh, countries and and, uh, you know China would no longer think of itself as a a developing country it would think of itself now as a developed country Uh, but You just, you cannot have development on the Titanic scale that is now happening all around the world without major and often catastrophic consequences for wildlife and natural systems. It's just in the end, we will just run out of space. I mean, the great thing about when Apollo 8 went round the Earth uh, in... uh, On Christmas Eve, 1968. And they came, Jim Jim Lovell said, Be advised, there is a Santa Claus. You may remember that. You you were only eight at the time, so (laughs) that may have affected you. What I
1: remember is the fascination of the adults around me. You know what I mean? Like I was there, I watched it on television, but I wasn't, what I saw is how they were taking it in.
2: Well, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, we all watched Neil Armstrong the following July, but what people who, who weren't remem- who, who who weren't alive then? Weren't remember. This is the first after the beginnings of space flight and orbiting the Earth. The first amazing thing was Apollo went Apollo eight at Christmas went round the dark side of the moon and and, and there was uh, Jim Lovell with uh, Frank Borman and uh, well who's the other guy William Anders wasn't it and and when they came back round from around the dark side of the moon. They saw, because remember, they on the way to the moon, they'd had their backs to it, mm-hmm. but when they came around the dark side mm-hmm. of the moon, they saw this amazing sight of this glowing, fragile blue globe in the deep blackness of space, and that was the Earth. And Anders took the photograph of it, which is known as Earthrise, and this was one of the most profound effects in the history of human culture because for the first time, we saw ourselves from a distance. And when we we did see ourselves from a distance we not only saw how beautiful our, our fragile blue planet was and uh, uh how impossibly fragile but we also saw that it was limited yeah i mean and yeah, i think a point right, I, ma- right. I made in the book yeah. was that you don't see that on earth because after one horizon there's always another one mm. but but when the apollo 8 astronauts saw it and took that photo we realized that it was a finite space, and and if we continue to develop at the rate we are going, we, I, I, I mean, human ingenuity can do many things, can't it? I mean, we had the famous uh, the green revolution in in farming, so we can feed a lot more people now than we ever thought we could. But eventually, in many places, we'll run out of space, and you know, it's humans humans who will take the space. And unfortunately, the poor old wildlife, well, that'll have to go.
1: Right. And as you note, know, we as we well, it's so interesting, isn't it, and strange that that um I mean, as you note, know, so, so much of the history of civilization of advance that we celebrate was about obliterating wilderness. I mean there was absolutely no value placed yeah. on wilderness and we forget sure. this now because we even just artistically aesthetically we've we've rediscovered wilderness but
2: That's entirely right.
1: Right, but it was just something to be tamed and it was foreboding and it was disregarded. Now yep. that we so so you 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 point out that as we are so much of the Of so many of the tool, even the frames of mind that we have to now assess, um, are so young, right? That um, as you say, I mean that picture in 1968, but also um, the language of ecosystem. I I didn't know this; I'd been wondering about this. It was coined in 1935. um, That that this is this the the life support system idea.
2: uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh-huh. I mean, we 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 should mix within the picture of bad things happening the fact that we made wonderful discoveries and that our our understanding of the planet that we 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 live on or that we have to live on has has gone forward by leaps and bounds. Yeah, it, it is just perhaps ironic and unfortunate that these these great leap forwards, these great leaps forward in our understanding of our planet, are happening at the very time when the planet itself is being overwhelmed by what humans are doing to it.
1: Yeah. And I think um, uh, your, the, the subtitle of your book, um, The Moss Snowstorm, is Nature and Joy. Yeah. And I don't want to call this an argument. I'm trying to think of a better word. Your thesis, but it's more, it's more passionate than a thesis, is that, is, that, is that even as we start to grapple with the dimensions of what's happening... And as we start to rediscover the value of the natural world um, to our well-being and even survival, um, we turn instinctively um, to measuring value the ways we do um, and having these kind of cerebral conversations about it And, and I think these discussions about solutions which also overwhelm people amidst all the other things that are overwhelming them. And your point is that 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 we could be making a different formal defense of nature and, in fact, that that's what we are called to do right now is a, to defend nature. And you said we should offer up what it means to our spirits, the love of it. We should offer up its joy. And, um, I want you to talk a little bit about your understanding, and joy is it's something that's distinct from mere fun or happiness or pleasure, although it may contain all of those things. The, talk about the heft of joy for you, that why that belongs and how that could be strong in this encounter we have
2: with our own planet. Well, in fact, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, the theme of the book the book is nature and joy. And uh, I do. Uh, I do have a look at what joy actually is. Uh, I mean, uh, I say that it, it, what, if, if we look at what, what is joy, I say it's an intense happiness. Yes, it is. But it it's somehow one that is set apart. It's it's not the same as fun or even delight. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it's... It, it's not the same as extremes of gratification like bliss or rapture yeah. which I, I i do say in our our own very cynical age you you can only use them semi-sarcastically um, but it's still there and 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 what it denotes is it is i say is a happy a happiness with overtones of something more which is perhaps a sort of spiritual quality um for example we we don't use it to define our pleasure uh, in eating um, uh, a particularly well made pizza um, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we, we might well think it was appropriate to describe the feelings of a parent finding uh, a missing child and finding them safe and well or the feelings of a lover whose love for another person has long been unrequited but who at last uh, finds it being returned and and I, I, I take the view that it, it's it's not a word that we use to describe self-centered gratification and so we wouldn't tend to use it for euphoria uh, of the kind perhaps uh, induced by drugs. What I say is that joy looks outward uh, to another person, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. uh, another purpose, another power as they would say in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I say that Joy has a component, if not of morality, uh, then at least of seriousness. It it signifies a happiness, a happiness which is a serious business.
1: Yes. I I think that's a line in the book. The passionate happiness the natural world can trigger in us may be the most serious business of all. (laughs) Um, And and whereas I think what's important about that, also in terms of what we're learning about our brains and bodies, is that while it's statistics – of decline and demise and the destruction of the natural world, uh, don't mobilize action right they they in fact dampen us um, and uh, though so joy can have a quality of seriousness and yet be animating
2: well, that's my hope and, 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 and that is my suggestion that that, that I mean, as you will know, I go uh, into some detail in um, the fact that the the natural world is going to hell in a handcart. There have been two attempts uh, to try and stop this, and one was, I mean, I wouldn't want to bore your listeners, but one was sustainable development, which is uh, trying to grow the economy in a green way, and that basically hasn't worked. And and the other one that is going on now is is to realise the value of ecosystem services, i.e. to realise just exactly what nature can do for us. And once we start to understand it, we realise that nature can do a very great deal for us. It can provide us with everything from uh, uh, rainwater to oxygen to natural pesticides to God knows what. And if we destroy it, we're, we're certainly damaging our own prospects. But uh, I take the view that that isn't sufficient either, and I suppose ultimately what this book was hoping to do was to mobilise in people the fact that the natural world uh, we we, ha- we can sometimes have very peculiar feelings for the natural world in certain circumstances. It's not always common; doesn't happen to all the, mm-hmm. and doesn't by no means happens to everybody. But it is my contention that it's possible for it to happen to everybody, to anybody. Right. And that if we could mobilise this sort of love we have for the natural world, and, and the essence of it is what I explain in the book, is that the fact that the natural world is a part of us. And that if we lose it, we cannot be fully who we are. And if we were to realise that, which is hard, and if we were to realise it on a large scale, which is even harder, that might offer a defence of uh, of nature at the time when we are trashing it remorselessly.
1: Mm-hmm. So, your writing is infused with this joy, and I'd like to just um, indulge, and in, I'd like for you to indulge in that a little bit, and let's let's just demonstrate, you know, what what that is. And just would you talk a little bit about um, the part of the world you grew up in um, and the natural world there that
0: okay yeah Yeah. I mean
2: I grew up in the northwest of England and what I tell uh, which is the industrial part of Britain for you know Mm. your your listeners who won't know the UK and uh, I in fact grew up I would nor, or I used to, I don't tend to do so much now, but I would used to tell people, they'd say, where do you come from? I would say, I come from Liverpool. I come from the city of the Beatles, yeah. which is an, an, um, a Victorian port, really, uh, and industrial city, but it, 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 it was a port. It was, how did you it, it was a bit like Baltimore, I suppose, something like that, you yeah. know, a, 19, a 19th century port. And, um, but it, it's on a river, and across the river on the other side is a peninsula, which is called the Wirral. And, um, and on the far side of the Wirral is another river. The the, the the river by the Liverpool is called the Mersey, and the river on the far side is called the Dee. Yeah. And the peninsula in between them uh, is where I come from. I, I mean, I you know I come from Merseyside, which is the, like the twin cities. You know, that's the conglomeration of Liverpool and its surrounding, its surroundings. And the, the the town across the river is called Birkenhead, and that's where I come from. Mm. But really, the Wirral is the the, the countryside. And it's the Far River, which is called the Dee, which starts off in Wales. It's a very beautiful river. It starts in the Welsh mountains and it flows into the Irish Sea. For those of you, your listeners who have some knowledge of UK geography, well, and I, you know, and
1: I think that those terms in Merseyside and side are, are familiar from enough yeah, okay. literature, I'll, you know? Yeah.
2: Forgive me. Yeah. I, no, I, no, you know, I'm not sure
1: I, people know where they are geographically, but those, yeah. are, those are concepts. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Well, well, one side of the world is Merseyside because mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. look across the river and there's Liverpool. Yeah. But the other side of the world is side because you have this enormous estuary of the River Dee and it's very wild. Even now, even now, it's very wild. It's only eight miles across the peninsula from getting the ferry to Liverpool, but it's on the Welsh mountains are on the far side, and and it's about fifteen miles long and about eight miles wide, and it's a massive, massive area of marshland, and then further down of um, of, of, of sandbars and sand and, and, and mudbanks as it actually reaches the ocean, as it reaches the Irish Sea and this when i was in my teens this estuary was where i went as a young birder it was a paradise for birders Hmm. and that's where i got to know uh where i got to know nature in a deeper way um and and this i do say in the book that you're very lucky if you can have a special place in in in, in, in your early life it's almost as lucky as coming from a happy family and um, mm. and certainly the estuary of the river d the d estuary was my special place when i was a teenager
1: you have a special adoration for birds which live where the land meets the sea as you say for estuaries and just one thing you say about estuaries is that they give us the gift the the gift of mud no I, no
2: and no, that's not hang on let I me mean, uh uh that's no or the birds I, the, the birds yeah. what i said was um um uh um a, a lady who re- reviewed the book in the new york times when well, in fact two people reviewed the book in the new york times and the first lady referred to me as the bard of mud uh, <laughs> thank you thank you very much i know uh,
1: i know yeah, no
2: <laughs> but but um 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 uh the uh i do think that the point i was trying to make was mm-hmm. the the what we call waders or wading birds and what in america you call shorebirds are a very particularly uh beautiful set of species of they they they're particularly they're particularly gracious um for 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 a number of reasons i mean one is that they i say that they are World wanderers. Um, the, the, uh, it, I mean, you may well know that the largest migration flight ever recorded was a bar-tailed godwit, which flew from Alaska to New Zealand without mm. stopping in 2007. I think that is 7,000 miles right across the ocean. It took it about five days. It had a satellite tracker on it. So they all go up to the most of them go up to the Arctic to breed, and then they they. They come back down to, to winter in places, places like Europe, and what they are is they're they're, they're not they're not tame. They're not like mm. the birds in your backyard. Okay. who hop around okay. your feeder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, even though those are beautiful. I mean, you know, I love American backyard birds. I love uh, cardinals and American goldfinches. I think and, and mockingbirds. I think they're fantastic. Um, but um, uh, but wading birds, as we call them, or shorebirds, birds, uh, they're on the one hand, they're very elegant; they sort of epitomise elegance. But on the other hand, they also uh, epitomise wildness. I mean, I say in the book that they w- they won't come to your garden, they won't sit on your fence, they won't hop on your lawn or sing for their supper. <laughs> they, they are I- I- in their own wild places, and they are eternally untamable. And they're also physically very beautiful. So I was very um, I was very taken. Uh, I, I did fall in love with with these birds, and I'm sure you know um, there would be a substantial number of American birders who would probably think the same, because you know you mm. have a you you have a very interesting and elegant suite of uh, uh, wading birds or shorebirds that uh, that breed on the coast of the United States.
1: Yeah um we're just we're entering spring supposedly it's snowing in minnesota today but
2: (laughs) is it really yeah
1: theoretically
2: (laughs) reminds reminds me of fargo Uh, i think (laughs) this is my top five movies ever made
1: yeah well this is even unusual for minnesota i mean there's usually snow in march but not in april um, but I have to say, reading you, I mean again, to get at this joy in nature, you know i um because I have been reading you while we were entering spring um again you're you're very lyrical uh, and and powerful about um just in the joy you take in this world's reawakening each year um yeah, I mean, right? I think just being attentive
2: uh, to that. Well, that's. I think that's right. I yeah. mean, I think there are a number of reasons why uh, why the natural world can spark joy in us, uh, I and mean, yeah, it can often happen suddenly, I and mean, you don't quite realise what you're feeling when you are suddenly taken over with this very strong emotion. In, in certain circumstances, it can be in a sunset, it can be in a, it can be in, in the presence of a landscape, it can be the presence of a singular, a single species, a, a particularly beautiful one. I mean, yeah. If you've ever seen a snow leopard, it's Mm. close to. I mean, these are amazing animals. But it's certainly the case that the reawakening of the world every spring is something that stirs very, very profound emotions in us. the fact The fact that our lives are um, linear, they only go in one direction, but the life of the earth is circular. Mm. It goes round, and everything dies. In the autumn, and the leaves fall off the trees, and and the, the the world seems to come to an end, and it's locked up in ice. But then it it's reborn, and that's one of the greatest things in our lives. Surely, that 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 rebirth of the earth. I think you have to be a um, a, a very very uh, concrete-hearted person. <laughs> not 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 to, not uh-huh. to i mean yeah, i mean you yeah. know i'm sure you've seen the uh, i think the cherry trees in washington are flowering yeah, right. just just about now you have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by that surely and and but, but, but and it's not just it's not just the physical beauty, which is enormous. It's the sense of new life. It's to, to us who only have one life, uh, especially as we get older and we know that the end <laughs> of it is coming, mm. the fact that here is new life being born. And, and um, I have a friend who's a, a woodland scientist, and he said to, he's in his early 70s. And he said to me um, uh, last year, I just see life now as how many springs I've got left. Mm. Um, mm.
1: Mm. you you um, have you have a special love or just I mean I think we all love blossoming as you say but I feel like you uh, you just attend to it you say you created a blossom yeah. calendar
2: yeah and I do, I do like that me. I mean I make I make the point that English is very unusual and, uh, and ch- a charming peculiarity of English the language is it has a special word for the flowers of trees
0: and, mm, and, and, mm, and mm.
2: most languages don't and if you, you know, read all your Japanese poetry and read all the wonderful haikus and so many of them are about blossoms of the plum in the Japanese the word is tree flowers and, mm. it's, and in French it's les en fleurs and in Germany it's die baumbluter but in English we have this special word for the flowers of trees which uh, <laughs> to me uh, adds to the charm and the beauty of the phenomenon and of the event
1: and I think because I've been reading you at this time, I have been just that much more alert to the bird song that comes, right, at this time of year. I mean, again, it's these things that we experience year after year and even look forward to in some way and don't ponder them, right? Don't take them in, Um you well, say somewhere for some years I have thought of spring birdsong as blossom in sound.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did think, I did yeah. think that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when I first thought that, I mean, I we my family and I um, spent Easter on the, the Isle of Skye in Scotland, and. Um, um, uh uh we've 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 just come back and i don't know if you or your listeners know the scottish islands but yeah, but
0: I, I, yeah uh, I do. they're
2: very they're very beautiful but yes. it's quite a it's quite a harsh beauty yeah. it's quite a tough beauty yeah and it's not the uh it's not the greek islands yeah no? uh it's not the florida keys um but I, when i first went to sky uh it was in the early spring and spring was coming and the and the The birch trees were all in flower. That's like the olive trees in Greece. But there was this particular small bird, which in Britain is called a willow warbler. And, and, And when it sings, it's not sensational, but it's very nice. And it's a sort of silvery descending cascade it sort of goes sip 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 sup 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 sip 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 sup 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 and and on sky and the moorlands and the and the birches it's a sort of harsh landscape but these softened it somehow they softened the, the bird song softened the harshness of the landscape and it softened it as much as blossom would have done and that's when mm-hmm. i first started mm-hmm. to thing that bird song in spring birdsong, could be blossoming it could be thought of as blossoming sound mm-hmm. I hope that's not uh, uh, too uh, poetic with a capital p it's though.
1: wonderful no it is poetic <laughs> we'll take it <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it is. Jolly it's, a, good. it's a line of poetry, definitely. <laughs>
2: well I am saying that uh, self-deprecatingly. I, yeah. I know you well. are,
1: but I'm I'm <laughs> I'm refusing to let it be self-deprecating. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All
0: right. Okay. Um the,
2: the
1: the title of the book is um The Moth Snowstorm and Yeah, that needs a bit of
2: explaining. Yeah, yeah,
1: I want you to tell that story, but I think the context also of so much of this and you know what we're discussing here, like the the abundance of spring um, f- that you and I knew in our childhoods—it's um, it, also this irony of the baby boomer generation of abundance, right? As you say, this is the yeah. generation that every, you know, supposedly we all everybody yeah. did better than their parents. Yeah. But also, but that at the same time, the defining characteristic of the natural world of this century that the baby boomer boomers brought into being is no longer beauty. Um, it's it's not abundance and and you know one thing you talk about is we are very focused on you know rare and charismatic wildlife and extinction like extinctions but you talk about the great thinning
2: yeah well that's 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 really uh, it's with regard to the United Kingdom really it's fairly special but I'll, I'll try and briefly explain it well
1: but but there's also this new um, Study out of Germany about I mean it's, oh, it's insects uh, uh, the, right the, I mean and it, the, I mean it's the
2: Crayfeld the Crayfeld Entomological Society that is sensational
1: yeah and I mean you the, say the windshield phenomenon right that I mean what I it's made me think about how in when I was younger I mean just how there would be bug it was and it wasn't pleasant right I mean bugs smashed on every windshield um, but that has changed and and you know when I say our generation I also I just also mean all of us alive right now
2: well what in america for want of another term is mm-hmm. generally referred to as the windshield phenomenon more and more the fact that 30 or 40 years ago if you went on a long journey especially at night in the summer mm. uh, your car windshield could be covered in bugs and so could your headlights and you might have to stop and 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 you you, you might actually have to clean the windscreen to as we would say to to carry on uh, the, the the my own term for that which you know i came up with myself is the moth snowstorm yeah. because 30 or 40 years ago in, in the uk maybe 50 years ago certainly if you drove down a country lane on a muggy summer's night there would be so many moths in the air and I mean and many other flying insects as well but I say let, you know letting moths stand proxy for all of them there would be so many moths in the air that as you drove faster and faster in the car headlight beams they would start to seem like snowflakes and it would, and in some occasions they would almost seem like a blizzard there would seem to be there was a snowstorm of moths and this was only made visible by the invention of the automobile we've only known about it for a hundred years because <laughs> right. if, even, we said smash them out, with something <laughs> yeah well even. if you went out at night Uh on a summer's evening you wouldn't really see that but in in automobile headlights Mm -hmm. we could see that and the whole point about the phenomenon of what you guys might refer to as the the windshield phenomenon Mm -hmm. what i'm referring to in england as the moth snowstorm the whole point about it is that it has gone Mm -hmm. it has vanished it does not exist as a phenomenon anymore you cannot now drive down a country lane in the countryside in England, on a muggy summer's night, and see what you could see in terms of the abundance of flying insects. Fifty years ago, that phenomenon has disappeared, and I use that as a symbol of the the the, the Well, I you know you said the the word I use for British wildlife is mm-hmm. is the great thinning that has taken place. And just to say very briefly, the reason I use that is this: in the United Kingdom, we've lost more than half our wildlife. Just since the Beatles broke up, just since 1970, uh-huh. I mean, we've lost even by the government's own figures, we lost 56 of our farmland, 56 of our farmland birds, and the insects and the wildflowers. They, they, they've all gone as as well. And 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 the point is, we would all. Be shouting and screaming about this if it was extinctions, because extinction is the metric that we all instinctively use right. to to right. recognise wildlife decline. Right. You know you've got the when endangered there are 50 species left <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, and if something goes extinct, it's on the front pages, yeah. and if something's about to go extinct, mm-hmm. w- 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 we, we bend over backwards to try and save it but in in England on, on on in the British countryside it was more subtle than that. It wasn't a disappearance of species, it was a disappearance of numbers. Mm-hmm. It was the fact that, just, well, year after year yeah. after year, there was simply less of everything, partly because we were pouring pesticides all over the land. Yeah. And, and and the other point I would make, you know, for American listeners is this. America is so big that you can have separate areas for your agriculture and your wildlife. And if I came to America on a wildlife holiday, I wouldn't want to go to the wheat fields of Kansas. I would want to go to Yellowstone Na- National Park. Yeah. But Britain is small and we can't it's not big enough to have well we have some nature reserves of course but basically the countryside has to do two jobs the countryside the english countryside has to have farming and wildlife on it at the same time and once you intensify the farming you just get rid of the wildlife and that's what's happened in the uk it's
1: interesting that um well that's an interesting distinction you make and you know by the way that our podcast is heard all over the world so we have a lot of British listeners as well when when the podcast goes out, um, but um, uh, you it's that's an interesting dis- dis- distinction between the American situation just in terms of land and and the UK. Um, it's interesting to me that we uh, and I I know this is I'm sure this is I mean I lived in in the UK for a little while so I you know
2: where did you live just in
1: well months? I lived. I lived um I spent a lot of time in Scotland and in fact spent last last part of last summer in in Scotland and and lived in uh, Wiltshire oh, in no nice. and a and a yeah yeah beautiful beautiful yeah, yeah. Um, but we modern people let's say it this way I think um, uh, to speak of you know, we think about farmers and farming as the place where the natural world is still revered and lived with, but you you talk about, and I even I even listen to the archers. That's <laughs> that's yeah. how bad I am. But you oh even say, God. yeah, I know. <laughs> um, it's a podcast. Some now. people
2: think that the theme tune should be our national anthem. You realize? I
1: know, that? I know. It's I can't believe I'm watching and listening again. Uh, but uh, we'll um, resist
2: the temptation to listen <laughs> <thing. laughs>
1: But you say, you say, and this is so striking to me that farming. You know, farming, as you as we're just going back to the beginning of the conversation, is a is a product of the of the five hundred generations, not the fifty thousand, and that farming represents, as you say, close contact not with the natural world but with the semi natural world.
2: Um, yeah, I I I think I I think I I think I would emphasize perhaps slightly emphasize something else, which has been a step change in the nature of farming since the end of the Second World War i i i i i think that um uh the i think the natural world could exist on farmland in the u k up until the second world war okay. um so you know you, you, I mean the the point about the beauty of the English countryside that people like Constable painted was that a cornfield didn't just have corn in it. It had yeah. blood red poppies amongst the corn and it had cloudy yellow butterflies flying over it and it had skylarks singing high above. So, uh, farmland was a place that delighted. But in the UK, we got a very bad fright. From the U-boat war in the Second World War, which nearly, which nearly cut off our uh, supplies of, f- of food, um, you know, from you guys, not least. And so, in the, the government that came to power after Winston Churchill fell, the Labour government in 1945 was determined that the UK should be self-sufficient in food. And what they did was in 1947, the year of my birth, they passed a piece of legislation called the Agriculture Act 1947, which gave farmers enormous help in intensifying and producing more food from their land and to do that uh, they were uh, given lots of grants to bulldoze out natural features which were all wildlife rich like hedgerows and ponds and coppices which is a small wood in the uk Um, and then eventually we got the whole post-war generation of pesticides. Uh, the, the, the thing that you know, Rachel Carson. Yeah. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Carson started the environment movement in 1962 with *Silent Spring*, and. I mean, the way the pesticides were first being sp- sprayed in in the United States—if you read Silent Spring—things like the campaigns against the fire ant—they were just egregious. They were just crazy. And yeah. as everybody knows, you know, there were dead robins listed all over front lawns everywhere, half, half half of America. But and that and that was scaled back. But what has happened since is the fact that farming has become wholly dependent on chemicals. And it is wholly dependent, largely on poison. We have a farming based on poison, and 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 what? Once you do that, it, 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 there's not going to be. Uh, w- once you have pesticides, there aren't only going to be no more pests, but there aren't going to be there aren't going to be any <laughs> right. more insects right. of. Right. Uh, of, of uh, uh, of any other type and, mm-hmm. and and as you know insects are at the, at the the bottom of food chains and and you instance yourself five minutes ago this amazing study from germany last october yeah. which has gone around the world yeah. by this little society which showed that in 63 Nature reserves, the abundance of flying insects since the fall of the Berlin Wall had gone down by 76%. In, in so nature if, reserves, in,
0: that's the astonishing so the, thing
2: so, about that. yeah Absolutely. So, yeah. what's it done in the wider countryside? Yeah. What's it done outside nature reserves? Yeah. So, Germany's lost three quarters of its flying insects. Mm-hmm. And, and people don't like insects, right? They like butterflies and right. birds right. like dragonflies. So, they're not sympathetic and, and they haven't cared in the past. We will mourn started. the loss
1: of mosquitoes and midges. <laughs>
2: Well I mean especially if you've been in Scotland mm-hmm. you know what the midges are yeah. like but 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 uh, I I mean something terrible is happening to the ecosystem uh, 40 50 years of just drenching the land in poison has done terrible things to mm-hmm. it and that's and that's what's going wrong
1: Um I mean you also mentioned um lead free gasoline or petrol um contributed I I wonder if you would tell us I mean there's so many factors obviously but I wonder there's a story you tell about the decline of the sparrow.
2: Yeah, there has sparrow, in, in London in particular.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh,
2: I've got American birder friends, and uh, I uh-huh. say, our sparrows have gone, and they say, well, you can have ours.
1: Yeah, there <laughs> because, you go.
2: <laughs> especially especially in New York.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, well, yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I mean, on my newspaper, which was The Independent, which is uh, um, online now, but it used to be a um, a, a broadsheet broad newspaper any year 2000 such a great
1: newspaper I was in it, Berlin when the independent launched and such a, yeah such a great yeah. paper yeah anyway well
2: it, it was yeah. I mean I was yeah. the environment editor for yeah. 15 years and but we started in the year 2000 we started to highlight the fact that the house sparrow had, dis, had basically disappeared from central London and 20 years earlier there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of house sparrows you'd go in St. James's Park near Buckingham Palace and there'd be guys who'd be selling you a a little bag of seed and you'd get 50 sparrows on your arm and over the course of about 20 years they all disappeared now they haven't disappeared from new york the central parks follow them they haven't disappeared from washington uh they haven't disappeared from chicago i've seen them in all those cities i'm mm-hmm. afraid they don't know minneapolis but i would imagine that they may well still be there and the thing was that even to this day nearly 20 years after we first started to highlight it no one really knows why it happened certainly something catastrophic happened in the ecosystem of the house sparrow in central london and in other major cities in the uk Uh, but we don't know what it is Uh, so it's um it's a great ecological mystery
1: and you um and i think you know the larger point that you're making in all of this is like as you say we don't we don't track all of this we don't track most of it it's just it's almost something that you notice in its absence that abundance that was there and but you had this interesting conversation with max nicholson an ornithologist
2: yeah he was the he was the uh, granddaddy of them all he was Uh the uh, he was the founding father of nature conservation after the um, after the second world war He, he he set up uh, what was the uh, our equivalent of the Fish and Wildlife Service, which was called the Nature Conservancy? Yeah. Uh, not to be confused with the American Nature Conservancy, which yeah. is an NGO. Um, but he he was the he he was the key figure, really. I mean, he's not well known to the general public at large, even in the UK. Yeah. But I went to see him about house sparrows because
1: to kind of ask about this mystery. Oh, sorry, are we? Hello? Oh, what happened? Oh, no. We didn't have a 60-minute hard stop or something, did we? 90? Okay, all right. Once, when we were on with the CBC, like, they had these automatic turn-offs. Yeah, like, at 60 minutes, it just turned off. Hello? Oh, hello.
0: Oh, hi, hello. Hello?
1: Yeah. Not sure we just lost you. Hold on a sec. Okay.
2: Hello. Hi. Hello.
1: Hello. 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 Hello, hello.
2: Hi. I think we've got that now. Okay. All right. So we're getting passed back in. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Hi. uh, It's Adrian here. Right. Um, I'm expecting to speak to Kirsten. Okay.
1: Okay. No, I know.
2: <clears throat> this is. Are you wanting? T-
1: is
0: that Kirsten
2: Tillich? Uh, oh no. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. hello hello can, you, can, can yes. you hear me Krista? yes yes there's an echo on this now
1: oh okay um there's a terrible okay. echo on it okay now i think it's gone should it be is it gone now try it now okay C- um, can you hear that yes
2: okay, okay we're back i think okay
1: wonderful uh, yeah i don't know what happened but we're back okay so, so luckily you were right at the beginning of a story you'd set up max nicholson so you went to see him to talk about i think the decline of the sparrow this mystery
2: yeah um Hang on, just let me get my head around it. Uh, uh, remember.
1: Um, I just, you know, I, I mean, there was this striking, um, this obser- this way he had of thinking through this puzzle that was quite, well, quite no, stunning. Um, yeah. I
2: remember that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Max, Max Nicholson was one of the... Uh, he was a government administrator, but he he was also um, a very senior biologist. And he he had a particular interest in the decline of the house sparrow because when he was a young man, and um, when when, when he was a young bird watcher, he and his brother in 1925, I think it was November the 1st, had counted all the sparrows in Kensington Gardens in London, (laughs) which is an extension of St. James's Park. Right. And the number they came up with was 2,603. And 75 years later, I went with him to the day, to to Kensington Gardens, to try to count sparrows with members of the London Natural History Society, and the number they came up with was eight. So he was particularly interested in the decline of the house sparrow. And when I went to see him, he he, he, he had a peculiar theory of his own which was that as they started to decline and they were probably declining because their food sources which are insects were getting fewer and fewer and fewer oh, okay. he thought that there might come a point where they they the colony sort of committed suicide that they sort of felt it's not the game is not worth the candle anymore um if, if there's there's only so few of us so let's not bother and th- this actually um has a, this this phenomenon has a scientific name. It's called the Ali effect after an American biologist from the 1930s it's called Verda Ali, which is, and the, the theory is that the, the, the declines in socially breeding species become self-reinforcing. So, so and, and you've, you've seen it with the chatush ant, antelope in, in, in Asia, that the, as your populations start to go down, is if you're colonial... Thinning? Yeah, As as they start to thin, there'll come a point where they just break up. And and he thought that might have been what was happening because sparrows are colonial, they nest in colonies. And he said he couldn't prove it, but he said then, you know, a lot of things that happen in the world can't be proved, but they're still real.
1: Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of come back to this larger framing of this and the I mean I could you know the way we discuss things like this when it becomes a debate uh, when it becomes about problems and to solve or whether they need solving and you know I could imagine somebody could say well we can live without house sparrows obviously London has gone on without house sparrows Um, I think your argument is that that if we should lose nature that we become less than whole, that we be less than we evolved to be, you even say that we would find true peace impossible.
2: Yeah, I th- that's what I personally think. I mean, uh, many people, I'm sure, wouldn't share that view. Uh, perhaps because I don't—I wouldn't want to be patronising to people who don't share that view, but you might say that because they don't see a lot of nature and they haven't seen what nature can do for for human beings. But um, I, I, I personally think that the natural world is where we evolved. It's where our minds evolved. It's where we became who we truly are and it's where really we are most at home. I mean, even if, think about it, even if you're a multimillionaire right, and you go on your expensive holidays <laughs> you like the sunset don't you you say darling come and see the sunset it's phenomenal that that even when you are as it were as you, insulated by wealth or whatever or uh from from nature itself moments still happen when nature impresses itself upon you greatly so i, I, I think I think w- there is within all of us uh, a-, a connection with nature, a-, a-, a possibility to love nature. I think with many people it doesn't happen because that age-old connection with the natural world, which I believe w- we have and which is empirically real, not 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 just a philosophical construct, but yeah. actually real, it's covered over, isn't it? It's not only covered over by... Fi- by 500 generations of civilization but it's covered over by the frenzy of modern life and also you have to say you know if you're poor and a huge number of people in the world are poor you haven't got time for it you're too busy scrabbling around to feed yourself and feed your kids and get them an education so my contention is not that We all love nature, but my contention certainly is uh, that we are all capable of loving nature because in us, at the very deepest level, at the bottom of our psyches, we have a link to the natural world, which really goes to the essence of who we are.
1: And, I mean, there is, you mentioned the Roger Ulrich study about which is, which is changing the way new hospitals are being built, but there is a whole there is an emergence of literature about public of public health about contact with the natural world. Oh, absolutely, There's a huge yeah. literature on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I the mean, other,
2: especially in, in America as well.
1: Especially, in, yeah, and another thing I was looking at just because I've been um, I've been working with this idea recently. There's a, there's this whole new science of awe, and how awe is this kind of defining human experience that actually has consequences. Yeah, AWE that actually and these are these are scientists who are studying this and they're not religious people, but you know that that this human experience of awe more than other emotions actually leads people to cooperate and share resources and sacrifice for others so it, that, that there's a link between awe and altruism. But what's interesting to me, because I, I knew I was going to talk to you, is that when they talk about the exa- – when they give the examples of how humans experience awe, just about all of them are experiences of being in the natural world, right? Just about every single one of them. Um, and, and it's just well, – Right. <laughs>
2: You, you, go on, go on. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I just, inter- yeah,
1: yeah. So I, I, uh, and so that I, I, I just, I'm, a, I'm aware of that, and you know, also what I just thought of when you talked about, if you know, if you have a lot of money, you still like a sunset, but there's also this kind of perverse demonstration of what you're saying, in that one of the things about modernity is how, you know, it's very hard in some places. To get close to a coastline because it's been bought up by rich people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
0: That's
2: it's entirely right. So
1: true I mean, yeah. in America in so many of our beautiful places.
2: Well, I mean, one of the one of the great achievements uh, of British society after the Second World War was we have um, uh, an environmental NGO called the National Trust, which has basically come to look after. Um, uh, uh, Greater arist- aristocratic houses that the aristocrats yes. can't afford to live in anymore. You know the, down- the Downton Abbeys, indeed. But one of the things that the National Trust started to do in the nineteen sixties here was to buy up coastline to preserve it in in a scheme called Enterprise Neptune, and they've now bought nearly a thousand miles, which is a lot for us. I know it wouldn't be so much for you, but it's a lot for us of the most beautiful coastline in the UK. But I do think that the the, the development of the coastline is Pretty rotten, and if you look at, for example, at the south of France, if you go from the Italian-French border at Mentone at Monton, and then you go west, you have to go way past Saint-Tropez. You have to go basically past Le Lavandou, yeah, yeah. and I've driven it, and it's a hundred miles before you get to natural coastline. So in the south of yeah. France, you've got a hundred miles, which is just concrete. You know, the beaches mm-hmm, are there, mm-hmm. but it's it's not natural anymore. Yeah, and, and and I think that's entirely right.
1: Um. Or you know, kind of how luxury places will be on these places of great natural beauty, but in that, in that sense, um, not accessible. Uh, to, well, to, I mean, to ordinary well, people,
2: if if you look at the market for luxury travel, it's one of the things it does, isn't it? It, yeah. it sort of tries to save beautiful places, which yeah. would be uh, would benefit the souls of all of us. Yes, but it basically, it says, um, yeah. "Hey guys, have you got?" well you you know you can have two weeks here uh,
0: and
2: and you can benefit from what we would all like to benefit from yeah so I don't know what the answer to that is yeah I I don't think I'm even drawing a conclusion but it's certainly the case no no
1: it's it's wonderful I mean I um, I one thing that I I think is provocative in your thought I mean you 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 say that humanism in fact I mean, we you talked about the, the limits of, um, you know, are, are the things we've come up with, sustainable development, but also that humanism, our legacy of humanism is actually part of the problem that we've had this vision of our own goodness and that our morality is anthropocentric. Um, and that, that yeah, actually I mean, complicates I, things at a moment like this.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, one of the difficulties, and I say this as, you know, someone who was brought up a Christian and has written for Christian publications, and I still think of myself, as I said at the start, as an ethnic Catholic. Yeah. One of the difficulties was that uh, there was a gaping hole in the center of the Judeo-Christian moral tradition. And that was respect for the earth. Okay, quite different from something like Taoism in China or Buddhism in Japan or Tibet. That what the, the famous uh, what the famous line in Genesis said was that you should subdue the earth and have it for your own uses. And
1: yeah, dominate that, it. And that's also a translation issue too, right? It's the way, and it's, the King James yeah.
2: Version was Well, clear. it is the King yeah. James yeah. Version. I'm just yeah. trying to find the actual yeah. quote.
1: Do- uh, um, dominate the earth and subdue yeah. it. Hang
2: Fill on. it. Genesis. Hang on, where, where is he? I, I do quote it. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things about Laudato Si, the papal encyclical on yes, the environment, yes, yes. which came out two years ago, was was that the Pope, Specifically repudiated yes. this verse of Genesis. Yeah. I was gobsmacked when I when I read it. I mean, I was eating a ham sandwich at the time. I remember, <laughs> and I nearly, nearly choked on it, and 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 so. And so And so the present Pope uh, certainly uh, does does, does not think that the earth is there solely for our use and for us to dominate. And Mm -hmm. certainly uh, Christian philosophy over the last 20 to 30 years has recognised this and it's tried to come up with a different sort of ethic, an ethic of stewardship. We are are the stewards of the Lord's creation and let us look after it wisely. So Christianity has moved on. But certainly in the West it has been... Uh, it, 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 it it has been the philosophical and religious and philosophical uh, philosoph- background t- to how we act that that respect for the earth was not part of the tradition and that has hindered us greatly i think
1: but I also think that what you're saying is that um that that modern humanism that secular humanism which picked up from there and left um as you 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 talked in the beginning about you know you're an ethnic Catholic, but um okay, but um sorry, I was just getting a sign behind the glass that um that there's something in you that still sees something about original sin, and that secular humanism kind of left that behind and had this faith in human goodness
2: well well i i I, uh, I, I gave my own. Uh, 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 naming to it, I, I said that the, uh, the the philosophy by which we in the West have certainly uh, lived our lives since the end of the Second World War. I think mm-hmm. I said I think you could term liberal secular humanism, mm-hmm. and I said that this was a, a, a creed which had a single and honourable aim, which was everywhere to advance human welfare. It wants everyone to be free from hunger and fear and disease and live happy and fulfilled lives as as far as possible. But that there was a gap at its core, which is it does not recognise that humans are not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And still less does it admit that there may be something uh, intrinsically troubling about humans as a species, that Homo sapiens may be, if you like... The Earth's problem, child. Right. Uh, I mean, w- the, the way we've looked at ourselves as a species philosophically, and un- under the liberal secular humanism, is we is we can do whatever we want. And um, you know, are, are there limits, and, and are there limits? Are, are there any limits on what we can do or what we should do? No, not at all. But but yet there are. Mm. And 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 so what? The fact that our belief system is such is 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 it. it we are not able in this belief system. Uh, f- properly, uh, to, to, uh, properly to face up to what we are actually doing to the world um, by development and everything else, w- which is that we are w- we are destroying our own home and 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 the, philosoph- the philosophical system by which we at the moment live, which does not recognise, if you like, original sin, and many people would say well, all, the, all the better for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, pa- I partly agree with that, obviously. But it does not recognize that, as human beings, we have a tendency to do very bad things, and because of that, we are not able to confront that tendency.
1: You, I have seen you using the word um, redemption as right as, <laughs> uh, yeah, and well, that's
2: the that's the old Christian in me. That's
1: the old Catholic in you, um, but you know. I mean, a, a, a also, also, i I think, uh, with echoes of um, our potential to be destructive, but that I mean, and what is spring about, right? Spring is this narrative of birth, deaths, and resurrection. Um, uh, it's not coincidental that that's when Easter happens. Um, whether anybody's going to church or not, that's the narrative. and i I do see you, I feel like that is your hope uh, well, that redemption is possible for us in this in this relationship with the natural world as you say our home
2: yeah I mean sometimes I think there's hope yeah. sometimes I think there isn't any hope yeah uh, maybe that's the condition of being human to think that
0: yeah.
2: um, but certainly uh, to me the, the greatest aspect of, of, of Christianity is redemption I mean in our society we all celebrate Christmas don't we or, or we did and we didn't really give two thoughts to easter but the but the the great ceremony of christianity really is easter um and it's the fact that there is forgiveness even for the even for the greatest sinners there is forgiveness which is an extraordinary concept really Mm. um whether or not there is forgiveness uh for humankind as they continue to march across the face of the earth, trashing it left, right, and center—I do not know.
1: Hmm. You, um, you end your book on love, a new kind of love, which is interwoven with a story about your mother, your relationship with your mother, which is very. But, but also, it, you're you're actually injecting that word also into an imag an imagination about what our new relationship with uh the natural world might be is that would you, is that right is that
2: yeah yeah i mean i mean i mean many of us can have um uh, a love of nature many 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 people have the love of nature uh, probably more don't but but many actually do and I, and i think that what i was suggesting was that that there, there could be uh a, a more informed version of that which would be a deeper and uh a more powerful version of it not just a casual love of the natural world which, which is fine you know mm-hmm. i have the same casual you know you walk out into your garden or you walk into the countryside and you you know you guys here at meadowlark or or whatever and and you feel joy but there could be a a a, a bigger and a more generalised realisation of everything that the natural world means to us. Um, the fact that, you know, the point I'm making, I'm suggesting is, is that it is an essential part of us and without it we can't truly be who we are. And I just take the view that if people not only loved it in a simplistic way, which is fine, I've got nothing against that, I'd do it myself, but if it, it could also be loved in an informed way, I, I think that that could be a very powerful force. If it, if it was a love, a love of nature that realized what nature means to us, what realize, what, a love of nature that, uh, that, that realized just how essential it is to our spirits, to our souls, to our very beings, and that realized that at a time when it's being destroyed all over the world were that able to be harmonized or, or hard sorry harnessed in some way it could be a very powerful force uh because because uh you know even one people who 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 uh even one person who 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 feels like that is good i, I mean even a single love like that i say has real worth but tha- thousands of loves like that have real power mm-hmm. since uh Ordinary people's feelings are the beginnings of political will.
1: Yeah, I wrote down I was, you know, f- fierce. You're talking about, it's in, and that's why also the the conjunction of that with your with your mother, you know, this the fierce love. Um, would you tell the story about how? I mean, we spoke in the beginning about your love of nature actually began in that very hard time early in your life when she was taken away from you for a while and and then and then later um, was was back not only in your life but to her you know came back to herself in some ways, and that that story of your mother and how that how that went together for you with the great British butterfly hunt
2: yeah, yeah. well, I mean, <laughs> how you
1: brought those things together in, yeah. in your writing yeah
2: well, um okay, uh, my brother and I he my brother John was a year older than me, and uh, we had an experience that must be common to many people uh my mother had a mental breakdown when i was seven and my, my brother john was eight and um she went away to a mental hospital which in those days you didn't often come back from but yeah. she did come yeah. back and my father was a merchant navy radio officer he was on one of the Cunardas the Queen Mary sailing between Southampton and New York so he was away so our aunt and uncle uh, took us into their home and that was where I saw the butterflies and because my brother was devastated but I didn't feel anything whatsoever in in that uh, um, um, absence of any other feeling that's where my butterflies got into my soul and why I became Mm. I fell in love with nature but when my mother came back um she had sort of recovered and 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 she was damaged in on the surface but she 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 wasn't damaged in her core as alas many people are who, who yeah. undergo mental trauma and gradually as i i went into my adolescence and my, my teens and my adulthood um, i came to love her very very much and 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 um, i, I re- rebuilt my relationship with her but it all came uh, crashing down in 1982 when i was 35 because my mother died at the age of 68 and i found then to my absolute amazement uh, that i could not mourn her and that just as i felt nothing when she went away in 1954 when I was seven, now when she went away forever, I couldn't feel anything either. And I did not know how to react to this. It was, you know, to have your grief taken away from you is a very, very strange situation. And I lived with this for seven or eight years. And eventually I realised if I was going to come to any sort of terms with it, I would need professional help. So I, um, as I say in the book, I started climbing up to the attic flat with a picture of Freud on the bathroom wall <laughs> twice a week <laughs> yeah. like you do you know like yeah. our generation all do yeah. we, you know we pay our hundred dollars mm-hmm. a time and uh, mm-hmm. it, it, which, it, which is even a part of London uh, <laughs> known as Crouch End uh, which has so many psychotherapists it's sometimes referred to as Couch End <laughs> uh, okay. uh, and anyway I, I gradually over the course of three years I came to understand what had happened and the fact was that when my mother had gone away, uh, when I was seven, I had hated her for that. I had hated her because she hadn't said farewell to us or anything like that. She'd just gone away and left me, although my psyche did not allow me to admit that. So I mm. it turned into indifference. And similarly, when she went away forever, when, when she died, the same feeling kicked in. I hated her because she had gone away again. I hated my mother because she was dead. And... Um, these are the sort of uh, tangled bits of your psyche that psychotherapy, which has lots of critics, but sometimes yeah. you know, can help you actually sort out. And it did in my case. And so, as I say in the book, uh, I was greatly um, thrilled to have recovered my feelings for my mother and to have understood what ha- happened in my childhood, which had seemed so confused. But I had no way of marking that. I didn't have a way of commemorating this really big thing in my life. I mean we we like meaning making, don't we? That's why we have ceremonies. We have ceremonies yeah. for christening, most yeah. of all we have ceremonies for marriage and we have sem- for, sem- uh, we have ceremonies for funerals. We don't let people be buried or cremated just like that. We we want to have some sort of solemnity, some sort of meaning making. But I had I did not have one and but eventually uh I came across one which is when I took my children to see my mother's grave we were sitting up standing by the grave and um what i thought was a dead leaf came blowing al- along the wind this was on a march day and it fell on my mother's grave and it was actually a peacock butterfly when it opened its wings and that just set set in me the idea of uh, a memorial to to my mother. (laughs) Uh, And the memorial was to go and see every single British butterfly species over the course of the summer. And there are 58 of them. And to dedicate every one of them to her. And because I was the environment editor of a major national newspaper... I suggested that as a summer feature. For you were the paper able to get
1: a lot of people involved in that with you.
2: <laughs> well, we su- we suggested that yeah. uh, yeah. readers might like to do this and there would be a prize for it. We called it, as you mentioned, The Great British Butterfly Hunt. Uh, but what, and, and it was very successful and it was great fun and all the rest of it. But what it was about for me was um, giving my mother uh, something to recognise w- what a magnificent person she had been and what I gave her. Was all the butterflies of my country?
0: <laughs> um,
1: I, you know, I don't think that I, You do, of course, realize how that the that the metaphor there, like the illusion of like of that love for your mother and like where we come from, and that how we can't feel our grief at the loss of of our insects and our birds and our blossoms. It's I don't know it's i get to hear it now more having you tell the story than I did, um, yeah. than I did when I read it, even yeah, and did you know that when you wrote
2: it i hadn't uh, <sighs> I think instinctively, but I didn't make the explicit connection yeah. i mean i i make it now that you say it yeah um uh um i mean the 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 connection was that when I was seven. My love for my mother had done this w- weird thing. It had disappeared and it, and, it, as I say, it had veered off strangely into butterflies, of all things. Mm. And so 50 years later, uh, I found a way of paying tribute to her, which involved butterflies, yeah. which involved dedicating them all to her it just seemed appropriate that was all yeah I mean you know it was just entirely personal if I hadn't written the book I would
1: yes I know but I've never told anybody about it but that's the thing about I mean love that's why it's such a good um, I spoke once with a a Buddhist teacher Joanna Macy I don't know if you're familiar with her she's been she like was involved in environmentalism before the word Mm -hmm. was coined and she talks about also our fierce love for the world and that you know when we you know, when someone you love is sick, you know, is in the hospital, is ailing, is dying, you don't, you, you go sit with them and you, right, and you, you don't say, well, I'm busy, I'm, you know, but, but with our, with the world that we love, with our insects and our birds and our blossoms, um, we, it's so overwhelming, we turn away. And yet I think you're making that connection too, that can we, can we, what is that bond you say, that bond we have with the natural world, if we could take that seriously, that could keep us also attending and then and then healing, participating. In.
2: It's just very difficult to recover, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, it's just so covered over, as, as we've discussed with 500 generations of civilization, but just the frenzy of modern living, just the cacophony, just the yeah. noise. Yeah. You know, if you live in a major city... Um, uh um i mean i'm friends with a i'm friends with a on twitter um with a guy who uh uh, called matthew willis who lives in brooklyn and his twitter handle is backyard beyond and what he's doing right at the moment is he's he's following the fortunes of two kestrels Um, I, i mean kestrels are very beautiful small falcons um that live in brooklyn and he puts it up on Twitter, uh, he puts up beautiful photographs of them and how they're getting on, you know, living right in the heart of residential and industrial areas. But not many people can do that. I mean, not many people who live and, and, and remember, since 2007, the majority of the people in the world live yeah. in urban environments. Right. That was a great, great milestone,
0: yeah.
2: uh, a, a, a terrible milestone. And the figure now is about 54 percent. Mm-hmm. And it will be 66% by 2050. So most of the people in the world live in urban environments where there isn't any wildlife. Mm. So how other than things like the, the, the sunset, and if you live in Manhattan, you can't even see the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, you,
1: I think you think it matters that he's, tr- he's following those kestrels.
2: Oh, gotcha. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a fant- fantastic thing to do. I mean, it, it just gives you hope that you can live in a city yeah. and there can still be wonderful wildlife experiences. Yeah. I mean, this was first done, do you remember, about 20 years ago when people started following the red-tailed hawks, I think it was, in, in Central Park? Yes. People right. started realizing that uh, right. you know, uh, urban wildlife could be really interesting, but there isn't enough of it and there's too many people. I, I mean, there's too yeah. many people t- to be able to take in uh, nature within the bounds of the city.
1: Yeah. If I asked you to start uh, this vast question, what does it mean to be human? Um, as you've lived your life and the things you've cared about, the observations you've made, how would you begin to speak about how your understanding of that has evolved, what it means to be human?
2: Well, the, the single gracious thing in our lives is the love for another person. That's what I think. Uh, whoever we are and whoever the the other person is but but human love um is transcendental or transcendent it uh i think it's the single greatest experience we can have and um i i rejoice when anyone has it Mm. and finds it and um uh uh i am mortally sad for anyone who hasn't found it in their lives of of whom there are many I mean there's a famous poem by Philip Larkin called Faith Healing about um, uh, you know people who haven't found love and and, uh, I I would just you know if I could wave a wand (laughs) the thing I would do is let every individual find the love of another individual I think that's what I would do but in terms of the context in which we've been talking for this period clearly uh, we humans come from somewhere. We don't just come from nowhere. You know, we didn't just just pop out of an egg. Uh, Well, we did in one way, but I mean, in another way, we didn't. (laughs) Uh, And where we came from, where we emerged from, is the natural world. And for 50,000 generations, we were wildlife, right? Uh, Well, we don't think we are anymore and probably we're not, but we were just another species. Um, I mean, and that's just of Homo sapiens. That's before, um, going further back, Homo erectus and everybody else. But, I think, for myself, I cannot see our identity as humans as separate from the natural world from which we emerged. And what I think is that in the end, our spirits uh, have an urge; they they have a longing to go back there. If not necessarily to go back there, it's still to be part of it. And I think this longing can be surprise you. It can suddenly leap out in certain circumstances. You can suddenly realize you're feeling much you're surprised by the strength of your feelings, hmm. but I do feel that that to be human uh, to be fully human is to recognize that the natural world is where we came from and it remains part of us and uh, without it, it being fully human is something we cannot do
1: well, thank you so much for writing the book and for having this conversation with me I'm really looking forward to sharing it with people and we'll, well thank we'll, you we'll let you we'll keep you posted on when it's going up and all that and yeah, be in very, all that. Very,
2: very strange to feel like somebody in minneapolis is in the next room modern communication
1: yeah there. yeah it's it's very intimate technology too don't you feel we're coming yeah, into each other's heads rather than talking yeah yeah, yeah yeah
2: are you going to be in london in the next year
1: i yeah i i get i i may be there this summer yeah well I, you
2: let me know and i'll buy you lunch
1: i would love to do that i'm really glad to know you're in the world thank you so much
2: well thank you i yeah. much appreciate it yeah. i mean i really do okay. and thank you for you know It was very, it was very good to talk to you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. And you. Bye Bye Bye
2: bye.